0: Thank you, Susan. Okay, I am excited to be here with you guys as we wrap up our summer study of Job. Um, before we get into the text, I'm sure that you've all heard of affirmations before. Uh, affirmations are positive quote-unquote, helpful statements that typically women like to give to other women to encourage them, to, you know, give them a boost, make them feel better about themselves. I was reading a website uh, just recently, and the website listed seven affirmations you should tell yourself every day. And at the top of the list was the affirmation, I am enough. And I thought, wow, that's funny, because I hear that all the time, or I see that pop up in memes, really cute lettering, whatever it is, I am enough, you are enough, and I thought, "Ah, I like that, I'm enough. And then I thought, well, what does enough really even mean? And then I was thinking, you know, I just had a birthday party for my dad, and people were texting me who were coming to the party saying, hey, should I bring some food, should I bring anything? And I said, no, I have enough. I have enough, I have everything I need, I don't need any more. So when we're saying I am enough or you are enough, we're saying we have everything we need, we don't need any more. And as I think about that, I understand our desire to wanna say that, especially as we live in this uh, total social media inundated world where we have visual pictures of what we should be everywhere, uh, making us feel like we don't look good enough and we're not working hard enough and we don't have enough people that like us. We want to hear, I am enough or you are enough, and I totally understand that. But the problem is, is we can have that plastered everywhere. Uh, We can have it literally tattooed on our body, all over our body, and enough just isn't enough it doesn't work. Uh, It it, it doesn't satisfy. It's not sufficient. It's not true. There's still something missing there, but there's this uh, hardwired longing within us to want that, to be at that place of enough, where we have enough. We got it. We don't need to add more. And I have to wonder, will we ever be able to get to that place where we can say, this is enough. I have enough. I don't need more. And we're going to be able to answer that question as we wrap up our study of Job this morning, as we look at Job chapters 38 through 42. So if you haven't already opened your Bibles, uh, open them to Job chapter 38. And as you're getting there, I want to just do a super quick review of how we got to Job chapter 38. Uh, We began in Job 1.1, right in the beginning, in our first uh, June study, and we saw that Job was definitely a godly man, and it was important that we hold on to that truth as we journey through the book, because we can get confused about what's going on, and we need to remember that Job was a godly man. He was a very godly man. He's described in 1-1 as blameless and upright, one who fears the Lord and turns away from evil. And after he's described that way in 1-1, God actually says that about him two times after that. So we know that Job is a godly man. And we saw that uh, there was a meeting where the angels presented themselves before the Lord and Satan ended up in that group. And God specifically targeted Satan's direction towards Job, towards this godly man, and said, have you considered my servant Job? I mean, he is a godly man. And we know that Satan then accused Job and said, the only reason that Job loves you, that he serves you, is because you've given him so much stuff. So he's not loving you for you, God, but he's loving you for the stuff, And then in a sense, he accused God of even bribing Job. And God said, no, that's not true. And Satan said, let me prove it to you. And so God allowed Satan to destroy Job financially, to kill his children, to decimate his health, to ruin his reputation, to just completely crush him. And we know that God was right about Job because Job responded not with cursing God like Satan said that he would, but instead blessing the Lord. And we saw that in Job 121, the great response of Job, where he said, after all of this, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. Yahweh gave and Yahweh is taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. And then we transitioned into our July study, where we looked at chapters 3 through 37. And we began with three, seeing that Job was in a lot of pain. Uh, He was in emotional pain, he was in physical pain. This was not easy. Uh, He was undergoing excruciating pain, and he cursed the day of his birth. He didn't curse God, but he cursed the day of his birth. He cursed the moment of conception. He said, with the state that I'm in, the emotional and physical pain that I'm bearing, it would have been better if I'd never been born. Uh, This is too hard to manage. And three of his friends came to quote-unquote comfort him. And they believed uh, what many believed at the time in the ancient Near East, what even Job believed, and that is, If you do good things, good will happen. And if you do bad things, bad will happen. And scholars call that the principle or the law of divine retribution. You do good, good happens. You do bad, bad happens. They're looking at Job saying, not only has bad happened, but horrific has happened to you. Therefore, you must be bad. That's why bad has happened to you. And so these conversations began between Job and these three friends. And the three friends were trying to help Job confess that he had sinned. Uh, to see that he had done bad, that he had done wrong. And that's the reason that all these things were happening to him. But Job said, no, I I mean, there's no hidden sin that I have. Uh, There's nothing that I have done that would cause these horrific things to happen to me. And so they went back and forth and back and forth in these conversations. And the friends became increasingly more and more mean And began to actually fabricate things that Job had done. And say, these are all the horrific things you've done. And there was someone there listening, Elihu. And he pops on the scene and he's frustrated. And he wants to rebuke Job and rebuke the three friends. uh, Rebuke Job for his self-righteousness, saying that he's done nothing wrong. And rebuke the three friends, saying that they were unable to convince Job of what he'd done wrong. And scholars are all over the board regarding who Elihu is, but basically his arguments just repeat the same things of the three friends, revealing to us, the readers, that in the end there are some things that only God understands and only God knows, and our human wisdom can only go so far. And as Elihu wraps up his speech. Now God breaks through. And that's where we're at in Job 38. God breaks through. God loves Job. And God says, Job, it's time to get your thinking straight. And God puts Job in his rightful place. Uh, Let's begin with Job 38, 1 through 3. It says, Then Yahweh answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. So God is going to have this conversation, quote-unquote, with Job. Now remember, throughout Job's speeches... Uh, He never cursed God. He was the only one uh, in the account that ever even prayed to God. He depended on God, but he basically said that God has let uh, things get out of control. Uh, For example, in Job 21, 7 through 9, uh, Job questions, why do the wicked live reach old age and grow mighty in power. He's saying, no, it's not true that if you're bad, bad happens to you. In fact, I've seen now that the wicked prosper. He says, their offspring are established in their presence and their descendants before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear and no rod of God is upon them. Job's saying, no, the wicked prosper in this life. And you know what else? The righteous suffer, He said, God really has let this whole thing get out of control. It is a big mess. It's complete chaos, and God has no purpose in what he does. And so, uh, God speaking to Job, now in Job 38, 4 through 7, we'll pick it up. uh, God says to Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? God saying to Job, it's a big mess? Really? No, it's not a big mess. I created everything, Job, and I created it with order and with stability. The things that you see to be chaotic are actually under my control. So the first point for us is like Job, we need to see God's control over everything. And that's what he reveals here. That's what he reveals to Job, that he is in control over everything, even the things that seem to be chaotic. He goes on in Job 38, 8 through 11. He says, or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no further. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. God saying, I have put limits even on the great sea. I have put bars and doors. I have the sea going exactly where I want it to go and how I want it to go. And in the ancient Near East, in Job's day, the sea was a terror to people. The sea was huge and it was vast and it was deep and it was dark. And when people went out into the sea, they didn't come back. It was dangerous. It was chaotic. And God's saying even the sea... I have set limits on the sea. I am in control of the physical earth. And he goes on to say, I'm in control of the snow and the rain and the constellations. I mean, think about it. The same constellations that we see in the sky are the constellations that Job saw. They're not chaotic and out of order and who knows what we're going to see tonight. God's saying, I have rule and order these things are under my control. And then he adds, uh, not only am I uh, in control of the physical universe, but I'm in control of the animal kingdom too. And he transitions to the animal kingdom and begins with the lion in Job 38, 39, and 40. Job 38, 39, and 40, he says, can you hunt prey for the lion? Or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in the thicket? Uh, Lions were also very frightening to people in the ancient Near East. I mean, think about how they lived and how different things were for them. They weren't in these concrete cities. They were out, and when a lion came, a lion could decimate your flocks, A lion could tear your children to shreds. A lion could kill your family. They were afraid of lions. They were the epitome of danger. They were a symbol of danger to these people. And God's saying, I not only created the lion, but I provide for the lion. Even the lion is under my control and under my care. And he went on to talk about the raven and the wild mountain goat and the wild donkey and the ox and the ostrich. And you might think the ostrich, I mean, what's significant about an ostrich, right? Well, in Job 39, 14 and 15, uh, God says, speaking of the ostrich, he says, for she leaves her eggs to the earth and lets them be warmed on the ground. So she lays her eggs and then she leaves them there so that they'll be warmed on the ground. Verse 15, forgetting that a foot may crush them and that the wild beast may trample them. God's saying, even animals that seem like complete idiots, (laughs) this ostrich who lays an egg there and then walks off, forgetting that anybody could come and step on the egg or a wild beast trample the egg. I provide for those animals, and I cause even the idiotic ostrich to thrive. It's all under my control and under my care. And he goes on to talk about the horse and the hawk. He created them, he feeds them, he nourishes them, and he allows them to thrive. And we got to think about all these animals through that lens of someone in the ancient Near East because these animals, again, were powerful and wild beasts that were outside of the control of humans, and they brought fear uh, to the minds of these people. And we, we've lost that. I know because I went to SeaWorld a couple weeks ago with my uh, daughter and my granddaughter, who's 10 months old, and we're running around SeaWorld trying to find her a stuffed orca. A stuffed orca with a garland of flowers on its head. You know, and I'm thinking, wow, this is a killer whale. And then after that, we were looking for a stuffed hammerhead because they're so cute with the two eyes on the side. Uh, These are animals that could destroy you. And we're looking for stuffed ones for a 10-month-old to clutch. So we've lost that realization that these animals were objects of great fear and great terror to people in the ancient Near East. They would tear you to shreds, but God is saying, I am in control. The things that can ruin you, the things that you are afraid of, I am in control of those things, the scary things. So I might ask you, what are you afraid of? What's scary to you? I mean, when you think, what are you afraid of? What pops into your mind? What's the first thing that you think of when you hear, what are you afraid of? And you might be embarrassed to share that with anybody. But there are fears that we have and things that pop into our mind. And God is saying to us, like he's saying to Job, I'm in control of those things. Those scary things are under my control. And then he says, Job, do you understand this? Do you get this? Do you see that I am in control over the physical universe and the animal kingdom? From uh, the earth to the sea to the constellations, all the weather, the lion to the eagle, all these things that may appear chaotic to you. They are under my control, and not only did I create them, but I manage them, and I actually provide for them. So Job 40, verses 1 through 5, Yahweh said to Job, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. And then Job answered Yahweh and said, behold... I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Job basically saying, You're God. I'm not God. I've been saying that all along. I totally understand. I'm not going to win. I am not going to argue with you. I'm not going to say anything. And God, in a sense, saying to Job, I don't think you're quite there yet. I don't think you quite understand what I'm trying to show you. Uh, You need to not just be quiet. You need to repent of your wrong thinking. You need to change where your thinking is off. And so God continues. Uh, he continues with Job to say, not only do I have the physical universe and the animal kingdom, the wild animal kingdom under my control, but even the powers of darkness are under my control as well. And we see that in Job 40, 10 through 14. God saying, okay, let's talk about now evil and the powers of evil. He says, adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Can you do that, Job? Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. God saying to Job, "Job, do you have glory and splendor?" Of course not. "Can you bring the proud low?" No. "Can you tread down the wicked? Can you even save yourself?" Of course he can't. God saying, "I am in control even of these evil things." Even the powers of darkness. And then he transitions to this animal that's called behemoth. And it's interesting because there are lots of opinions as to who or what behemoth is. Uh, I'll read to you from Job 40, 15 through 18. It says, behold, behemoth, which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold, his strength is in his loins. And his power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs like bars of iron. And he goes on. And scholars have said, "Uh, maybe it's an elephant or a hippopotamus or a crocodile. But none of these things really fit. And some have pointed out that behemoth, it literally means beast. And the word beast there is in the plural, meaning beasts. And some scholars say, and I agree because we've transitioned now into God pointing that he is in charge of evil, uh, that this is what God uses in the Old Testament and in Revelation as well, a composite animal. Uh, An animal made up of different parts of an animal to really point to the powers behind the animal. And we see that, for example, in apocalyptic literature, like in the book of Daniel. And I'll read a couple verses from there. Don't try to write this down. But just to show you that God uses these composite animals to often point to the forces behind the animals. Uh, For example, Daniel had a dream in Daniel chapter 7. He saw visions. Daniel 7, 2 and 3, he said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came out of the sea different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man and the mind of a man was given to it. So this composite creature, this composite beast that God is showing him to point to the powers behind this quote unquote beast. Uh, There were four beasts shown. Daniel really wanted to know what the fourth beast was. Uh, God told him in Daniel 7, 23 and 24, uh, he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, And another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. God showing all these beasts, these composite beasts, these different creatures and the horns and the whole thing, these are pointing to uh, forces of evil that I have under my control. So often these composite animals, uh, potentially an animal like Behemoth, are pointing to forces of evil that are trying to create chaos and terror in the world. Uh, Even political forces, different nations, uh, presidents, rulers, elections, all of those things. God showing these things are all under my control. As he showed Daniel, And as he told Daniel uh, the future in advance so that we would know the future in advance, and he's told us other things in advance, he does that so that we will know that he controls the future. God shows the future in advance so that we will know God is in control of the future. And we know that the future includes chaos and terror and darkness and evil and God is saying, I am in control even of those things. And then we get to the climax, so to speak, uh, in Job 41, where God points to Leviathan. Job 41. Job 41.1, he says, Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? So this great beast Uh, He's talking about now saying, you cannot attack or tame this beast. And he goes on to speak of this Leviathan. Let's just look at verses 15 through 21. And as I read these, uh, picture the animal that he might be describing or the creature that he might be describing. He says in Job 41, 15, his back is made of rows of shields. So this animal, this creature, has rows of shields on it. Shut up closely as with a seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. So think of this animal with these giant scales that are like shields that are so tightly knit together that air can't even get there. These strong protective shields. And then he goes on in verse 18 and says, his sneezings flash forth light and his eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. So we've got light coming from his eyes and coming from his nose. And then it goes on in verse 19, out of his mouth go flaming torches. Sparks of fire leap forth. So we've got fire going out of this creature's mouth. Out of his nostrils comes forth smoke as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. So boiling water is around him as he's blowing this fire out his nose. His breath kindles coals and a flame comes forth from his mouth. These scales of armor, this fire and smoke coming from his nose. What do you picture in your mind when you hear that? Yeah, exactly, a dragon. Yes, a dragon, that is what it sounds like. And then if you look at Job 41, 33, and 34, continuing to describe Leviathan, it says, on earth there is not his like, a creature without fear. So there is nothing else like Leviathan. He sees everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. Who do you think is the king over all the sons of pride? Yes, Satan. Yes, exactly. Uh, we see this, look, in Isaiah 27.1. Isaiah 27.1. It says, in that day, Yahweh, with his hard and great and strong sword, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. So now we have this connection, Leviathan and the dragon that is in the sea. And then Revelation 12.9. Revelation 12.9, it says, And the great dragon was thrown down, the, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So it's like behemoth and Leviathan will be thrown down. God pointing to these powers of darkness. God saying to Job, I am in control even of Leviathan. I am in control even of Satan himself. This is not a dualistic universe where we have God fighting Satan and they are both equal opponents. They are not equal opponents. They are in conflict for now, but God is clearly in control. And we see that even from the beginning, even from Genesis chapter 3, right in the beginning. We know that uh, the serpent, Satan, uh, tempted Eve to rebel against God and she did. And it says in Genesis 3:15 that there will be a punishment for the serpent, for Satan. It says in Genesis 3:15 God saying to the serpent, "I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring; her offspring being the Messiah, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." So you shall bruise his heel. You will nail the Messiah to the cross, but he will bruise your head. He will ultimately crush you and destroy your power. And that is the first messianic promise in the Bible in Genesis 3.15, pointing to this offspring of the woman, one born of a woman who would be bruised, crucified, and yet crush the serpent, crush Satan. And we see that in Colossians 2.15. Colossians 2.15, talking about Jesus on the cross, it says he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. On the cross, Jesus triumphed over these powers and forces of darkness and he put even Satan to shame, conquering sin and death and the devil. And we're gonna be able to study that In Colossians, this next Bible study session, Martin Luther, the great Martin Luther, the Reformation guy said, even the devil is God's devil. God is in control. And we saw that Satan was in Job chapter one and chapter two. Uh, He presented himself before God. We saw that Satan was On God's leash, right? That God said, you can only go so far, or this is what you can do. And now Job sees that God will defeat Satan. Job didn't see what we saw as the reader, but now he sees that God is in total and absolute control, not only of the physical universe, not only of the animal kingdom, but of evil itself. And so Job 42, Job 42, one through six, then Job answered Yahweh and said, wow, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I got it, God. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Yeah, you were talking to me. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Here and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. We had that conversation. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job repents. He repents not of deeds that he did wrong or things that he did wrong, but he repents of his wrong thinking. And sometimes it's not our behavior that we need to repent of, but it's our thinking. Our thinking can be off. Our theology can be off. Our worldview can be off, and we need to get that in line as well. And God loved Job and helped Job to get there, and Job declared, God, your purpose, your purpose is all that matters, and that's the second point, is we've got to rest assured And I like that rest assured like Job did at that point where he said, I now know he was liberated. He was free. He said, I got it. I can rest assured that God has a purpose for your pain because he's in control of everything. And if he's in control of it, he has a purpose. Job, I know that you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Remember, before Job was saying, things are a mess. Things are out of control. The wicked prosper, the righteous suffer. God doesn't know what he's doing. And now he says, no, there is a purpose in all of this. I got it. God is in control. He's in control of everything, including evil, and he has a plan and a purpose in everything that he does. Now, you might be thinking, Well, does this mean that God approves of evil? No, absolutely not. Does this mean people who do evil are just God's tools and they're not responsible for what they do because it's all a part of his purpose? No, no way, not even close. And we see that throughout the entire Bible, but one place that we see it clearly is in the Old Testament account of Joseph. Uh, found in Genesis 37 through 50. And I remind myself, I love this account, but this is 25% of the book of Genesis, 37 through 50, if you throw out chapter 38. But 37 through 50, um, there's no 25% of Genesis given to anyone, Adam or Eve or Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Uh, It's given to Joseph. And this is a great, great account of these two truths of God being in control of evil and yet in no way uh, approving of evil or even allowing those who were tools in his providential plan to not be responsible for that evil. We know that uh, the Bible tells us that Joseph was hated by his brothers. They hated him because his dad favored him and so they wanted to kill him. But instead, they decided that they would sell him. They trafficked him. He was a victim of human trafficking at the hands of his own brothers. Uh, They saw traitors, and they sold their own brother. And he ended up in Egypt. And when he was in Egypt, this Hebrew boy, this young teenage Hebrew boy, uh, he was accused of a crime. He was falsely accused of a crime and he ended up in jail. He ended up in prison. And when he was in prison, uh, there were a couple guys that came in there who worked for the Pharaoh that was the world leader at the time, the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And they had these crazy dreams and Joseph interpreted the dreams because God had given him the interpretation. And he said to one of them, when you get out of here, can you get me out of here? And the guy forgot. The guy forgot until God allowed the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt himself, to have dreams. And then the guy remembered in God's providential timing. Then the guy remembered. He said, there's a guy who's in prison. He knows God, and he can interpret your dreams. And they got Joseph. He interpreted the dreams, there was going to be famine in the land, and they basically made Joseph the ruler of the world next to Pharaoh himself, which is so amazing because if you think about it, if it wasn't that, you know, selling as the human slave, if it wasn't the false accusations, if it wasn't all those horrible things, he would never have been placed in that position to take that slot as you know basically the ruler of the world and not only that but to save the world from a worldwide famine which drove his own family to have to come and get grain from him and he recognized his brothers and he wanted to see if they were repentant if they were different so he orchestrated a series of tests and discovered that yes, they were repentant. And then he decides he's going to reveal himself to them. And you might think it's so weird. How did they not know that was Joseph? Well, 13 years had passed. I mean, he was trafficked at 17. Now he's 30 years old. And boys change a lot in 13 years from 17 to 30. Uh, They get more facial hair, their bodies develop. 17 to 30, and he left as a Hebrew slave, and now he's the Egyptian ruler? I mean, imagine him like King Tut, you know, just this garbed-out Egyptian guy, speaking Egyptian. They're not thinking, hey, is that Joseph? (laughs) There's no way. Well, it says in Genesis 45, 4 and 5, Genesis 45, 4 and 5, Joseph said to his brothers, after realizing they were repentant, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And they're probably thinking, we're dead. I mean, he is going to torture us, and rightfully so. And then verse 5, Genesis 45, 5, we should all memorize this. He says, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. He's saying what you did is wrong. You sold me here. This is wrong and you are responsible for your wrong. He says for you, because you sold me here for God sent me. God sent me before you to preserve life. God had a plan. He had a purpose for all that pain. For you hating me, for you trafficking me, for me being falsely accused, for me going to jail for no reason, for me sitting in jail those extra two years, all of that was to save the known world from famine. So he's saying, here are the two truths. You sold me, you did wrong, and you were responsible, but God sent me God sent me. And that's what we see in Job, this providential control of God. And so whether it's Job's pain or my pain or your pain, we know that God knows that he's in control and that he has a purpose for it. And that's what this incredible book teaches us. we got to remember that Job didn't have the Bible. He didn't have the New Testament Job didn't have the book of Romans. He didn't have Romans 8.28 like we have it. Uh, Romans 8.28, if you haven't memorized that, that's another one that you need to memorize along with Genesis 45.5. Romans 8.28 says, and we know. Remember Job in Job 42.2. I know that you can do all things. And we know that for those who love God, So for those who have placed their trust in Christ and turned from their sins, all things. I know that you can do all things. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And again, it doesn't say some things work together for good. Or most things work together for good. Or everything except that one thing. He says, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, the purpose of God. I know that you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Job's understanding these truths that were to come centuries later. Can you imagine if he actually had the New Testament? Do you think he would believe it? Of course he would. He was a godly man. Do we believe it? If Jesus were to talk to us tonight, Jesus were to show up and talk to you alone tonight when you're in your bedroom and say, listen, I know what you're going through. I know that pain. I know what you're suffering. But I guarantee you that this circumstance will work out for my glory, for the glory of God, and for your good. And I'm not going to show you how. I'm never going to show you how. I'm never going to show you why this is happening. But I do guarantee you that it's going to work out for my glory and your good. Would you believe him if he said that to you? Do we believe him? Because that's what he said to us. That's what he says to us in his word. Do we believe him? Job believed him. Job believed God. Job was liberated. He was freed. He got it. He said, you know what? I got this. I know. God is enough. I am satisfied. I need no more. I got it. Well, what about Job's three friends? Uh, Job 42, seven through nine. Job 42, 7 through 9 says, After Yahweh had spoken these words to Job, Yahweh said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourself. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what Yahweh had told them, and Yahweh accepted Job's prayer. Remember the friends, Job, you're suffering for your sin. Job said, I haven't done anything that would be worthy of this great suffering. God was with Job the whole time. God loved him. And now he demands this huge sacrifice for these three friends. And he asked Job to mediate the sacrifice. And God says, I will forgive you. And Job forgives them as well. Of course he does. Job was a godly man. He was upright and blameless. He feared the Lord. He turned from evil. He forgave them because he lived a life of faith. Job lived by faith. And that's our third and final point. Plan to live by faith. Like Job, we need to plan to live by faith. And we see this uh, in the book of James. James, the half-brother of Jesus, actually writes about Job. In James 5.11, he says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast, who remain faithful, who lived by faith. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose. There's the purpose again of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful the steadfastness of Job. That's that word we hear often, that Greek, hupomone. Hupo is a prefix meaning under, meno, Greek verb, to remain or to stay. He stayed under the tough times. He remained. He was faithful. He lived a life of faith. The one who is steadfast, the one who is faithful like Job, they stay and they do not give in. They do not give up even when they have no idea of what God is doing. And we're called to do the same. We're called to do the same thing. 2 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7. 2 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7, the apostle Paul says, we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. We live a life of faith. We're steadfast. We remain. We endure. And this isn't blind faith. It's not an unreasonable faith. Our faith is rooted in truth. We know that there is a God and that it makes way more sense to say that there is a God than to say that there's not. We know that we have ample evidence to believe that God has communicated through the scripture. So there is a God. He's spoken through the scripture. We know that. This is not blind faith, but this is the faith that's necessary when the circumstances of our lives do not make sense. When we don't understand what's going on, we have to trust in God's absolute control. And we have to trust that he has everything even our pain working together for a purpose. You might say, it's not that I have blind faith, but I feel like I have really weak faith. And you know, if you feel your faith is weak, be encouraged in the sense that it's not the degree of your faith that saves you, it's the object of your faith that saves you. And someone can have really strong faith in the wrong thing or in the wrong person. And that's not good. But even weak faith in the right thing or the right person, even weak faith in Christ is sufficient because it's Christ that saves us and not our degree of faith. But yes, I understand the desire and I too want to have a stronger faith. It's good to have a stronger faith, and our faith grows as we get to know the object of our faith, as we build our relationship with the object of our faith, and really, it boils back down to those two things we hear all the time, Bible and prayer. That relationship, that communication, we hear from God, we hear from Christ as we read his word. And I would say as you read his word, remember this is his message to you specifically. Don't read it just to check the box and say, okay, I did that. God is happy with me now. But read it as if these are God's words to you. Uh, When I first became a Christian, I was not raised in a Christian home. And the Bible was brand new to me. And when I realized this is God's word to me, I went crazy. I was reading 10 chapters a day, four Old Testament, four New Testament, one Psalm and one Proverb every day thinking, I got to read this message. And I remember reading through the Psalms daily, reading Psalms like we read today in the DBR, Psalm 70 or these imprecatory Psalms and thinking, whoa, if someone's mean to me, I feel sorry for them. Like God's going to get them. You know, God is on my side. But reading through these words, realizing this is God's promise. These are God's promises. These are truths, truths we can live by. Reading through it, saying, God, what are you showing me today? Not, can I read this to check it so I can say, okay, I did my Bible. I'm good before God. God, I did what you wanted. But reading it, saying, God, what are you showing me? What is it that you have for me today? And then prayer. talking to God. I remember when I first became a Christian, this whole concept of, like, I can talk to God, and I can communicate to God, and he hears me, and he answers me. The God of the universe, this is amazing. And then getting together with friends and saying, help me with this. You know, let's do this together. And that was so powerful and so fun, just finding one or two friends and saying, one friend in particular, let's pray together every day. And we prayed together for years, decades, praying together for each other's families, uh, just being able to pour our hearts out before God together. And then having prayer meetings with our friends anytime there was a big event or a problem or something was going on, we'd get together, we'd call Dominoes, and we would pray. And it was so fun. Birthdays? Why celebrate birthdays? Let's have a prayer meeting. I mean, everything turned into prayer meetings. And it was such a great time. Really getting to know the object of our faith through reading his word and then through communicating him with him in prayer, and when we get to that point, when we just start to develop that intimacy with the Lord, our relationship changes, and we enjoy uh, that freedom that Job enjoyed there, that liberation, and God loved Job. We see that. He loved Job. He let Job experience incredible suffering, but he loved him, and Job loved God. He proved that. God, I don't need the stuff. I love you. I got this. And you know what? God restored it all to him. Uh, We see in Job 42, 10 through 13, it says, And Yahweh restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And Yahweh gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before, and they ate bread with him in the house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that Yahweh had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. In verse 12. And Yahweh blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys, seven sons, and three daughters. And then verses 16 and 17. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons, four generations, and Job died an old man and full of days. So the text says that Job got back double. We saw what he had in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, and then we look at what he has now, and it's double. He had 7,000 sheep. He got 14,000. He had 3,000 camels. He got 6,000. 500 yoke of oxen, 1,000. 500 female donkeys, 1,000. But it's interesting because Job 1, 2 said he had seven sons and three daughters. And then in Job 42, 13, seven sons and three daughters. So he didn't get double the amount of kids, which makes sense because you can't replace kids, right? I mean, there would have always been that pain there of the family that he lost. But you know, some scholars say, maybe he did get double the kids because he had 10 in heaven and 10 on earth. And that's a reminder to us that in the end, it's not about what we have here on earth. It's about what we have in the life to come. James 1.12. James 1.12 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. I've seen there to be these two great experiments in the Old Testament. Uh, The first is the experiment that Solomon ran in Ecclesiastes. Uh, Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived, and he happened to be the most powerful. He had all the money, all the resources. He could do whatever he wanted to do. And he ran this great experiment with pleasure. Uh, He wanted to see what would satisfy, what would be quote-unquote enough. And through this experiment in Ecclesiastes, he tried pleasure, he tried all sorts of food and drink, building projects, wealth, money, uh, relationships, sex even. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. I mean, the guy tried it all. He tried everything. And you know what he said in the end? In Ecclesiastes 12, 13, he said, it's all a bust, none of it. None of it worked. None of it satisfied. He says in Ecclesiastes 12, 13, the end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. He says, you know what? I had it all. I did it all to the ultimate degree. It is a bust. Knowing God is enough. You fear God and you keep his commandments. And then we have this second experiment in Job the experiment that God ran, in a sense. Job, he was the most godly man. He, too, was the wealthiest. And so God was able to run this test on him by not giving him everything but taking it all away, Uh, taking away his wealth, taking away his family, taking away his health, taking away his reputation. And it was all gone. And remember in Job 28, 28 from last time, Job, speaking to his friends, said, God said, in Job 28 28, behold, the fear of the Lord, fear God, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. To obey his commandments, it's the same thing that Solomon said. When it's all said and done, even if you lose it all, it's okay because knowing God is enough. Fear the Lord. And keep his commandments. God is enough. And knowing God is enough. Knowing Jesus is enough. And we get to spend the whole next year seeing that Jesus is above all else. Jesus above all else. Jesus is enough. So make sure and sign up for our study of Colossians. Because it's going to be wonderful. This is our last time. You get your sticker in your group. Guess what verse we're focusing on? Job 42.2. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. If you made it to all three after your group time, like Susan said, get your water bottles. And I am just so thankful for you guys being willing to journey through Job together with me because it's been life-changing. Let's pray. God, Thank you so much for our church, uh, for the way that our church loves and supports our women's ministry. Thank you for the privilege, the honor of being able to work together through Job this summer. God, I pray that we would really know these truths that you've revealed to us through this uh, last session, that you are in control of everything, the physical world, the animal kingdom, even evil, even Satan himself. God, I pray that we would not forget that you have a purpose for our pain and that there are times that we don't have to try to figure out what that purpose is. We might never know what that purpose is, but you have a purpose for our pain. And I pray, God, that you would help us to truly live by faith as Job did. That when you see us, that we would be women who are characterized by living by faith and God help us help us all in all the busyness and all the hurriedness and all the things that are pressing upon us and even our desire to be pleasing to others God help us to be in your word to hear from you through your word and to communicate with you in prayer to pour our hearts out before you and if it takes teaming up with someone else so be it but God help us to be faithful to communicate to know that you hear. And to know that you answer our prayers. And all of our prayers, we pray in Jesus' name. Because if it were not for Jesus, we couldn't even be here, Lord. So again, we close in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys are dismissed to your groups.